Well, good morning. It is good to be with you guys again. Thanks again for just worshiping with us. It's such an awesome privilege for us to get to worship together live like this. I'm so thankful for it. Hey, <clears throat> we are finally coming to the last week in our series on The Church Defined. You know, we've been trying to get this picture of the church in your minds and try to give you some ways to think about it. Uh, certainly, we haven't... Uh, completely exhausted the definition of the church, but we've really been talking about these four pillars of the church or, or what we're using as four legs as a stool, right? And we're saying that if you have a four-legged stool and even one of those legs is weak or one of those legs is missing, everything comes crashing down. And, and when it comes to the church, those four legs are love, unity, worship, and ministry. And we've been talking about this now for several weeks, and, and I'll be honest with you, I just feel like I haven't said enough. I can't believe we're coming to the end of this series, and I feel like there's so much more to say about the church, and I just haven't said enough. But then I started realizing I'm a preacher, and preachers never think they said enough, right? So I'm going to leave that in your guys' hands. I want to encourage you to take it from here and go into the book of Acts and look at the church. Read Paul's letters and think about what he says about the church. There's so much more for us to think about when it comes to the church. Last week, we got to the fourth leg, right? And we started talking about ministry. And hopefully what you got out of last week is that it's not okay to sit shyly in the corner. It's not okay to sit back and watch other people do the ministry. But if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are a Christian, if the Holy Spirit lives within your life, like it or not, uh, you know, ready or not, you are a minister. <clears throat> and the Bible describes you as a minister. And it is essential to the work of the whole church, the mission of Christ in the world, that every one of us is using our gifts to minister to people. And like Moses, we might be afraid and we might have a million reasons why we shouldn't be chosen, but God didn't call you because you're qualified. He qualifies you after he calls you. And God has equipped you to do what God is calling you to do. So you got that last week. Hey, there's a calling on your life. God expects you to be a part of the team. God expects you to be in ministry. And, and I think one of the common ways you could respond to a challenge like that is to say, yeah, but how? I mean, it's one thing theoretically, but how do I actually make a difference? Because I look in the mirror and I don't see someone who's really equipped to make a difference. So how do I do that? I mean, especially in this day and age. I mean, I, I know we all know this, but we've been living through the weirdest year I can think of. It has been a crazy year, <clears throat> and we're only halfway through. It has been difficult. There have been so many things that happened. By now, you've probably forgotten that the year started with the country of Australia on fire. And, and it was followed up by the United States going to the brink of war with, uh, with Iran. And, and then on a Sunday morning while I was preaching, the news broke that Kobe Bryant had died and, and the whole country <clears throat> just responded in shock to that. There have been serious earthquakes in 2020 that have killed thousands of people around the world. There have been major plane crashes in 2020. Uh, there, there has been the worst on record um, uh, locust 
infestation in Africa that we've seen in this whole century. Uh, and then, of course, the murder hornets, right? They popped up on the scene. We went, oh my gosh, that's horrifying. And then they disappeared because they became boring compared to the other stuff that we had to deal with. Because COVID-19 hit with an absolute wave. And none of us was ready for it. And no country's government was ready for it. And none of us as individuals knew what to do. And we're still dealing with it now. I remember it was four months ago that I stood in front of a camera and made a uh, statement to the church to say, hey, listen, it looks like for a couple of weeks, we're not going to be able to meet together for worship services in our building. Well, that couple of weeks has turned into four months. And we have no idea where that light is. It's at the end of the tunnel. And so that's been going on. And obviously, over 100,000 people dead from that. The economic ruin that has happened because of that. Some, so many out of work. Stock market crashing and rebounding and crashing again. Ah, racial tension. All of the stress that has come upon our society as a result of the fact that we have a long history of not doing the right thing in terms of prejudice and people responding to that sometimes out of anger and sometimes in violence and political arguments about what to do about that. That, my friends, has been the first six months of your 2020. Congratulations, you survived. It's a crazy time. You look at the condition of the world. You read the headlines today. The everyone's still arguing about what to do next. The kids are going to be supposed to be going back to school soon, but no educator knows what's the right way to handle that or if we're even going to be able to handle that. And we sit here and go, hey, wait a second. You're telling me I'm supposed to change the world? My answer is yes. It's exactly what I'm saying. But it's not me that said it. It's actually Jesus. See, you have the obvious question, what am I supposed to do? And when you have a question like that that's that important, the best person to ask is Jesus. Remember, he was always finding fresh ways to make the same point over and over and over again. If you want to live a successful life, love God and love your neighbor. He said it a thousand different ways. He said it every time he got the opportunity. He said it in the Sermon on the Mount. He said it privately with his disciples. He said it when he was confronted by the religious leaders who wanted to take him down. He said it in response to his critics. The same message again and again and again. Love God and love your neighbor. And we said this last week, simple enough on paper, right? I mean, God is perfect. God is awesome. God is wonderful. He's easy to love. And my neighbor, well, you know, my neighbor is my close friend, the, the people that I like, the people that are near me, the people around me that I have a lot in common with, right? But just to make sure, one time when Jesus was talking about this issue yet again, a young man asked him a question, a very straightforward question, a very simple question to clarify what he meant. He asked this question, hey, Jesus, who is my neighbor? I hear you saying, love your neighbor. Who are you talking about? So if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to open it with me to the book of Luke. We're going to be in the New Testament today, book of Luke, third book of the New Testament. And I want you to go to Luke chapter 10 with me, and we're going to join in as Jesus enters into a really, really important conversation 
with one of his critics. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. Follow along as I read. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said, What is written in the law? How does, how does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Now, this guy, it tells us right here, he's trying to justify himself. He's trying to make himself look better. He's trying to make himself feel better so he doesn't have to feel guilty about what Jesus is saying. So he's trying to narrow it down. He's basically going, listen, after all, there are people everywhere, everywhere. There's just tons and tons of people. So can you narrow it down for me a little bit? I mean, do you really expect me to love everyone? Obviously, that can't be it, right? It's a fair question. I mean, I might have asked the same question myself if I had been in that audience. And in typical Jesus fashion, he answers the question with a story. Pick it up with me in verse 30. Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put them on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Now, which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. This is the example that's given. A no-name outcast Samaritan. And don't forget, we talked about this a couple weeks ago when we were talking about worship. The Samaritans are absolutely despised by the Jews. So Jesus' listeners, when they hear a priest enter into the story, they're thinking, okay, the hero is here. But the priest does the wrong thing. And then comes a Levite who's just another kind of priest. And this Levite goes by, people are like, okay, finally, somebody's going to do the right thing. And he does the wrong thing. And then they say, and Jesus says, and there's a Samaritan who comes by. And everyone's natural response as a Jewish listener would be to shrink back and think, uh-oh, this guy's going to kill him. And it turns out that the Samaritan is the hero of the story. It turns out that the Samaritan is not the bad guy at all. He is just a nondescript Samaritan. Nobody anybody's heard of. Nobody that is worthy of respect or looking up to. He's not some great person in Jewish thinking like Moses or David or Elijah or somebody like that. And in the scheme of things, even in Jesus' story, what this Samaritan did is a small thing. 
He just helped one guy who was in need. Not the kind of thing that makes history books, right? Just a random act of kindness. A stranger feels compassion, meets a need. No big deal, right? Unless you are the guy laying on the side of the road naked and bleeding, to him, this was a very big deal. You see, I think some of us sometimes get confused about what makes a person great. We, we get uh, all turned around when it comes to the concept of greatness. I mean, we know, or we think we do, who the great people are, right? Especially in the Bible. We know who the great people are. People like Abraham, right? God calls him, and he lays everything aside, gives everything up, and follows God. He just takes off after God, leaves his family behind, leaves his wealth behind, leaves his property and his land behind, and off he goes. And we go, wow, what a great man of faith. But listen, it's not that step of leaving all of that behind that makes Abraham a great man. What makes Abraham a great man is the 10 million steps of faith and obedience that he took day by day for the rest of his life as a follower of God. Or think about this. What about David? David, of course, the most famous thing that he ever did was he toppled a giant, right? He comes up against the Goliath. He's the only one with enough courage. He goes out without any weapon or military training or armor. And he goes out there and fells the giant. And he walks away with the giant's head in his hand. And Israel has been delivered. And we go, wow, David is great. But that's not what makes David great. What made him great is the daily life that he lived by faith after that. Remember, after he was uh, anointed to be the new king of Israel, the old king was still in power. His name was Saul. And David had multiple opportunities to kill Saul and take over his throne. And every one of them he passed up on because he wanted to honor God. Or think about David's devotion and his friendship with Jonathan and what a devoted friend he was and how committed he was and what a difference he made in that life. Or, or think about the fact that just, just from time to time, David would pick up a quill and he would write songs. And today we have some 75 psalms written by David in our Bibles that are still drawing us closer to God today. Or think about all the times David messed up and the example that he set for us of genuine repentance in his life, how he led others. See, it's, it's one day at a time, one small act at a time, one step of faithfulness at a time that makes a life great. Think of it this way. A lot of us have the idea, and, and somewhat rightly so, that when you come to God, he expects you to lay down his life. And we talked about this when we talked about worship, that we are to be a living sacrifice. You're supposed to be laid down on the altar your whole life to him. So if your life was a $1,000 bill, we think of it as we walk up and hand God our thousand bucks. And we say, now our life is yours. And in a sense, that's exactly what happens. However, what happens next is that God takes the $1,000 bill and exchanges it for 4,000 quarters. And he hands us back a sack of quarters. And he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to spend these touching lives and changing the world one quarter at a time. 
That's what God's calling us to. Now, when you think, can I give my whole life to something? Maybe you're afraid or maybe you feel a little um, standoffish about that. But when you think, can I spend a quarter? Can, can I just make a little investment? Can I do a little bit here? Can I do a little bit there? Think about the Samaritan in Jesus' story. Not a powerful man. Not an influential man. Not a famous man. In fact, he didn't even have his religion figured out, right? Just a guy who made a sacrifice to care for his neighbor. And Jesus says, that's a great man in my book. That's the example I'm calling you to follow. Now, let me, let me just take a diversion here. I want to make a side note because we're talking about this idea of loving our neighbor. And, and as I said earlier, we tend to think of our neighbor, by definition in our society, a neighbor is a person who lives next to you. A neighbor is a person in very close proximity to you. Uh, a neighbor is somebody who's like you, someone you have a lot in common with. Probably in your neighborhood, people are basically in the same socioeconomic uh, station in life. Probably most of the people in your neighborhood are of the same race. Probably the people in your neighborhood have similar views. And you think, yeah, these are the people God is calling me to love. But in his story, Jesus makes a point of, of choosing um, a protagonist uh, who, is, who is absolute opposite of the person that he helps. He says, this is how neighbors work. These guys don't have anything in common. These guys wouldn't so much as say hello to each other if they passed one another on the street. These guys don't go to the same clubs. They don't know the same people. They don't vote for the same politicians. They don't listen to the same music. They don't live in the same neighborhoods. These guys don't have anything in common. And Jesus makes a point <coughs> of making his hero a Samaritan. But you know who was like the victim in this story? The priest who walked right by him and ignored him. The Levite who walked right by him on the other side of the street and ignored him. But his neighbor turned out to be the one he had nothing in common with. What makes you a good neighbor is not your proximity to somebody. It's your willingness to serve that person. And sometimes you have to leave your comfort zone in order to find your neighbor in his point of need. And when you find him, don't be surprised when he doesn't look like you. And don't be surprised if he doesn't think like you. And don't be surprised if he doesn't vote like you. And don't be surprised if he doesn't follow the same people on Twitter as you do. But God just might call you to go to the other side of the tracks in order to find your neighbor and meet his needs. This tribal mentality that is so prevalent in our society today has absolutely no place in the church of Jesus Christ. This idea that we just to define ourselves according to whatever group we decide to belong to. And that group becomes the driving force in our life. And I care for the people in that group. And I care for the issues facing that group. And I do what's best for that group. And I couldn't care less about anybody else. In fact, those other groups are all sort of enemies to me. 
Now you may say, well, Pastor Doug, you're being, you're, you're exaggerating. Really, have you been on social media lately? Have you turned on the, the mainstream media lately? Are you listening to what the politicians are saying about each other? Are you seeing what's happening in the marches and the signs that are being held up and the hateful epithets that are being uh, put out toward people? We've just sort of decided, I guess I better figure out who my people are and those are going to be my people. Jesus says, everybody's your people. And it's time that we wake up it's time that we stop making this just about doing what works in my comfort zone. And we start to care for people everywhere. If we're going to be used by God to change the world, we're going to have to lead the way. Do you hear that, church? We have to lead the way in serving people who may not be like us. Because we all have one thing in common as people. We're all made in the image of God. And therefore, we all have inherent value. We all have inherent worth. We all have inherent dignity. And so the issue is not what skin tone do you have? What political party do you belong to? How much money do you have in the bank? The issue is, are you a human being? Because as a human being, God has called me to make you my priority. Sometimes it's in caring for what Jesus calls the least of these, that we see God change the world through us. And I've told this story before, but I think about it often. When I was in high school, I came to know Jesus right at the beginning of my freshman year. And it was a, it was a massive life change for me. Everything changed for me on that day. And I've been following the Lord ever since. Now, I went to a really big high school. We had 4,300 students in my school. And... Uh, I was not the homecoming king. I was not the president of the student body. I'm not the most popular kid in the school, but I fit in a bunch of different crowds. I never went to school thinking, man, who am I going to eat lunch with today? I always went to school every day, couldn't wait to see my friends, knowing I was going to be accepted, knowing that I fit in, knowing that I had my group, multiple groups that I could choose from. But what I started to notice, I think it was around my sophomore year, I started to notice that all around my campus, especially at lunchtime, well, all the groups would gather 10 and 20 at a time, and they'd be sitting in circles eating their lunch and messing around and doing their thing. If you went to the corners of the campus, if you went out behind the baseball field, if you went down into the science hall, if you went around the corner behind where they store the equipment, you'd find some kid sitting there with his brown bag eating his lunch by himself. They were all over my campus. And the Lord just helped me to start noticing them. And as I started noticing them, he put them on my heart. And I thought, wow, these kids have no one inviting them into their group. And so I decided that day that I was going to make it a point to spend my lunch hours with those kids. And little by little, I went around, I would introduce myself, I would ask if I could sit down and have lunch with them. And most of the time, they were thrilled at the opportunity. Many, many, many of those kids I got to share Christ with. Many of those kids came to know the Lord. My youth group became swelling with kids from my campus, outcast kids, kids who had never been cared for, 
kids who didn't have friends, kids who are new to the community. You know what I found out? Most of them were fantastic people. Some of them are still dear friends in my life to this day. What an awesome thing to be able to realize that such a small gesture could actually change someone's life, could actually change someone's eternity. God is calling us to care for our neighbor. Isn't that what Jesus did for us? Take your Bibles and go to Romans chapter 5. Just a few books to the right. After Acts, you're going to find Romans. And a very famous passage in Romans chapter 5. I want to just read you like three verses here. It's starting in Romans 5 verse 8. It says this, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. In that little passage, it reminds us, listen, God didn't come looking for you because you were so wonderful. You were his self-declared enemy. You were a sinner by definition and by practice. And the holy God decided to come and make you his friend. I mean, isn't this what God does for us? He asks us to do, to do the same for others. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus did. And following the example of Jesus is always a great idea. Which gives me a chance to make a shameless plug for the sermon series that starts next week. Next week, we're going to be uh, taking on a new series where we're going to be looking at the life of Jesus. This series is called Follow Me, Walking in the Footsteps of Jesus. And what we're going to do is look at these pictures in Jesus' life, and we're going to see the way that Jesus acted, the motives that moved Jesus ahead, the compassion that drew Jesus to people, and how Jesus lived his life and what he prioritized, and how we can apply those same priorities and values in our own lives. So I hope you will be here for that next week. But Jesus set the example for us in this too. He said, you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself, and I don't care if your neighbor is your enemy. All the more reason to love him. Now you may be thinking, you know what? That Pastor Doug, he's not so ridiculous after all. I think he's actually right about something for once. I think he's really onto something. Christians should be changing the world. Man, I wish I was in a position to do more. I just wish I had some power. I wish I had, you know, more influence. I wish I had more resources so I could change the world. I would, I would put an end to racism. I would, I would stop poverty. Man, if I could, I would just make such an impact in this world if I only had the resources, the power, and the influence to do that. Well, my friends, I have tremendous news for you today. You don't need the resources. God has the resources and you have God. You don't need the influence. God has the influence and you have God if you're a follower of Christ. You don't need the power. God has all power and you have God if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. 
You have an invitation. Even if you've not yet become a follower of Christ, you have an invitation to come into a personal relationship with him. That very same God with all the power, all the resources, and all the influence. And if you have that relationship, your job is simple. Walk with God and be available. You know, for a couple of years, I worked in management for a construction company. And part of my job was to go to construction sites, meet with project managers, superintendents, and uh, sell them what we had to offer as a company. And so I spent a lot of time every day on construction sites. Now, I am notoriously not good with tools. I am notoriously not handy. But I do know a little bit about the construction industry because of this. And here's what I noticed as a guy who doesn't know anything about tools. I noticed that if you go on a construction site, you will see tools everywhere. I mean, there's skip loaders and jackhammers and skill saws and table saws, hammers and nails, all of that kind of stuff. Just everywhere you look, there are tools on the construction site. <clears throat> but there's one thing I've noticed. I have yet to ever once in my life see one of those tools accomplish anything. You see, tools don't do anything. Tools are available so the owner can pick them up and do something with them. God's not asking you to be the one who knows how to fix everything. God is not asking you to be the one who has the power to do everything. He's asking you to be like a tool on a construction site. To be there, to be available, to be ready to do what you were designed to do. You can do that. Are you available to love your neighbor as yourself? Are you willing to let God spend your life one quarter at a time? I hope so. Because I got to tell you something as we close this series on the church. Followers of Jesus, we are the church of Jesus Christ, the living God. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. We, the church, we walk in love. We, the church, we operate in unity. We, the church, we live to worship. And we, the church, cooperate with God so that he can use us to change lives and change the world through ministry. People are hurting out there. People are desperately in need of the touch of Jesus Christ. And they're trying to find purpose and meaning in a world that is full of chaos and out of their control. And they're being lied to on every front. We are the church. The light of the world. Ambassadors for Christ. Called by God to do more than sit in the audience and watch everything fall apart. But called by God to be the influencers who change the world one day at a time, one selfless act at a time, one life at a time. And so I ask you, church, what do you think? Are you in? Let's pray. God, we come before you, first of all, thankful that you've made it even possible for us to be your church. 
that, that while we were yet sinners, while we were still your self-proclaimed enemies, you came after us and met our needs, that you served us, that you loved us, not because we were like you, but because we weren't and we desperately needed it. As we look out on a world and it seems like it's dividing into factions and we say, they're not like me, they're not like me, they're not like me, only these people are like me. Oh God, won't you help us to see the spark of God, the image of God, the likeness of God in every human being and begin to say, it's my job to make a difference for him. It's my job to be an influence for her. It's my job to shine the light on him. God, we are your tools available at your discretion. Use us, we, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.